Thank you, Neil. Thank you, Father. We're looking in particular tonight, it is our intention to look in particular at the last verses. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace, whereby we may offer service well-pleasing to God with reverence and awe or godly fear. We've been looking and we've missed the last few weeks because of poison ivy, because of Easter, and one thing or another. But we've been looking at the subject of the fear of God, and the last few weeks at the subject of godly fear, a particular word, eulabea, in the Greek that is rendered in one form or another in Hebrews 5, 7, with respect to Virtually every commentator agrees that it's a reference to Jesus Christ in Gethsemane, how that that he experienced godly fear as he prayed unto his father, as he wept. And then in Hebrews eleven seven, with respect to Noah in the building of the ark, how he builded the ark with godly fear, submitted unto the direction of God with godly fear. And the third verse that occasions the use of that word is also in the book of Hebrews, the epistle to the Hebrews, the sermon to the Hebrews, and it's in these passages that we just read in, in verse 28 of the 12th chapter, with reverence and awe or godly fear, the word is translated in different versions differently, I have it all, I have it happily in the margin, godly fear. But the idea here is that receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, as we see in the words that precede this, and that's why I wanted to read that entire portion from verse 18 so we could set the stage, as it were. We're not going to deal with all those verses. We're going to be looking at at verses 25 through the end, but those others set the stage, of course, and they give us the context and so on, and they're extremely important. But how is it that we may offer service or offer worship well-pleasing to God with reverence and godly fear? In reverent submission, the last time I preached, and it's been long enough ago that you may not remember, but... Uh, we suggested a translation for this that would be in reverent submission, in reverent submission, reverently submitting to the will of God in all things and in particular in our worship. Perhaps you remember the case of the, the kingdom under David and passed on to his son Solomon in how that at Solomon's death, upon the death of King Solomon, and according to the prophecy of God and his intentions, Rehoboam behaved very badly to the point that the kingdom was divided, the tribes were divided. Rehoboam maintained the kingship, the throne over Judah, and Benjamin stayed with him, but the other ten tribes followed Jeroboam. And it was interesting to me this morning to hear reference in Hosea by our brother's message to Ephraim because, in fact, 
Jeroboam was of the tribe of Ephraim. And the behavior that we witness in Jeroboam is so much characterized by those in Hosea that our brother set forward this morning to us. But you'll perhaps remember how that Jeroboam took the ten tribes off and became their leader and ultimately their king. But he was concerned that these people, that at those three stated feasts each year, that were supposed to be held in Jerusalem, that they would go back to Jerusalem for those stated feasts. And when they went back, that they would be encouraged, that they would be inclined, that they would be enticed, whatever word you want to use, but that they would go back to Rehoboam because they would say, ah, I remember the temple here in Jerusalem and I want to, I want to return here. So what was Jeroboam's solution to that dilemma that faced him? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 12 and 25 and beyond, we find the answer to the solution. The answer of Jeroboam was, well, I'll set up idols. I'll set up places of worship here for these 10 tribes. And so we had a golden calf created, built, made, manufactured, and set up one in Bethel and one in Dan, the northern and the southern part of Ephraim or of what became Samaria. And he said unto the people, behold, exactly the words that Aaron chose. You remember when Aaron was complicit in making a golden calf while Moses was up on the mount. Behold, your God. Here are these two golden calves for them to worship. They deceived themselves, perhaps. They pretended that they were worshiping the true God through these images. But of course, even as we heard this morning, Jeroboam and the people were violating the second commandment about graven images. They were violating the first commandment about having any other gods. Jeroboam was creating gods for them to worship. He was creating another way for them to worship. And he set up priests. Not of the tribe of Levi according to the direction and commandment of God. But just anybody that happened along that might suit his purposes. And that might be willing to be a make-believe priest. So he set up a priesthood that wasn't of God. He set up Images that were not of God. He set up worship that was not of God. Now we understand that according to the word, in other words, when the scriptures, when we read in the scriptures, according to the word, that that's a term that should be applied to the worship of God, that it is to be according to God's word, according to God's direction. It is, according, it is to be that which pleases God. And it certainly is not found in the pragmatism of modern Jeroboam's. Do you see this? Do you see how many, how many, many years this goes back and we still have the same thing today? Men, people setting up worship pragmatically that pleases them, that suits their needs, that suits their purposes. 
And there are many, I'm sad to say, there are many modern Jeroboams. Idolatry is defined by A.W. Tozer, and I'm sure you remember this, his phraseology that the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. I wrote that down and I thought, well, you know what? You could cut that right in half for many churches, many professing churches, many professing Christian churches, that is. And you could simply say the essence of idolatry is the entertainment. Stop. You know what I'm talking about? Talk about pragmatism. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment. And it's interesting that Tozer innocently, I'm sure, employed that word. But how much, how much, how many places that call themselves places, places of worship of the living God, how many, in how many of these places has entertainment displaced the true worship of God? People go there to feel good. They certainly don't want to feel bad. They don't want to have Elijah or Elisha John the Baptist pointing a finger at them. They go there to be entertained. But what Jeroboam set up and what so many set up, it was of his own heart, we read. Of his own heart, he set these things up. Of his own will. It was will worship. And will worship is rampant in the world today and and in our country and in our county. But what the writer, the preacher, slash uh, apostle, the preacher writer of the epistle to the Hebrews has written here in these two verses, he's saying that since we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, that's one of the motives why that God should be worshiped that we should be offering service well-pleasing to God with reverence and godly fear or awe. And he says, he goes on to say, let us have grace. We have been given grace. He says, let us have grace, whereby let us serve. In a third argument, he says, for our God is a consuming fire. In Deuteronomy 4 and 23 and 24, this is where Paul evidently draws this from. I'm sorry. (laughs) The writer of Hebrews makes this statement. He draws from Deuteronomy. Where where Moses says, where God says through Moses, take heed unto yourselves, lest... Ye forget the covenant of Jehovah your God, which he made with you, and make you a graven image in the form of anything which Jehovah thy God hath forbidden thee. Why? Why does he tell them, don't do this? What's the basis? What's his argument? What's the foundation of that? He says, for Jehovah thy God is a devouring fire, a jealous God. And the writer of Hebrews, this preacher, uses that from Deuteronomy as the basis of his argument that we ought to have grace whereby we may offer worship well-pleasing to God with reverence and godly fear. We have received a kingdom. 
we have received a kingdom. If we belong to Christ, if we are believers, if we are Christians, if we have new hearts, we have received a kingdom, have we not? Christ and salvation, that's our kingdom. We should be infinitely grateful and we should worship according to that gratitude. Bringing in nothing that will displease or provoke our sovereign, holy, loving, and yes, jealous God. Beginning with verse 25 in this chapter, the words are, See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for they escape not him that warned them on earth. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not, and they didn't, when they refused him that warned them on earth, and we read the backstory that he's talking about Moses. He's talking about that Mount Sinai that blazed with smoke and fire and thunder and, and lightning, and the people were frightened. And they told, asked Moses, go speak with God. We can't, we can't abide this. And they were in great fear. But see that she refuse not him that speaketh. But this follows immediately after we read about Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better than that of Abel. We're talking about Jesus Christ speaking. And we're exhorted here, see that she refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not, if they escape not him that warned them on earth, if they escape not the warnings of Moses, of those that we read of, not just only in the Old Testament, but again in the New, in 1 Corinthians 10, those that wandered in the wilderness and so on, those that were set down by the New Testament writers, by Paul in Corinthians, as a warning not to behave as they did, not to behave as those in the wilderness, wilderness, and those in the Old Testament that are being spoken of. You remember perhaps those that at Kadesh Barnea, the, the 12 spies being sent in to spy out the land. And 10 of those 12 came back and said, oh, there are giants in the land. We can't take it. God promised it to you. We can't take it. They're huge. They've got walls around their cities. We can't do it. God has promised to give it to you. And only Joshua and Caleb said, God has given it to us. Let's go take it. But the ten prevailed. And so because of that, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And, and they died in the wilderness. They perished in the wilderness. And all of the other murmurings of the, of the people of God that are recorded during those, those journeyings, all the murmurings, complainings, we don't have any food, we don't have any water, let's go back to Egypt. It was, it was pretty good there, let's go back. If they did not escape, they that refused to listen to Moses, they that refused to listen to God through Moses, if they did not escape, what about those that refused to listen to Jesus Christ? 
who speaks from heaven, who spoke from heaven, and who speaks from heaven to us. Christ's blood speaks better than that of Abel's. It reminded me of a Wesleyan hymn. I don't mean Wesleyan, but a hymn of Charles Wesley. That lovely hymn. What a, what a hymn writer. What a, what a closet Calvinist Charles Wesley was, perhaps. But listen, you remember this hymn? Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Forgive him, oh forgive, they cry. Nor let that ransomed sinner die. But they strongly plead for me. Christ's blood speaks better than that of Abel's. His blood cries out for the forgiveness of those for whom he has died. How might we be guilty of refusing him that speaks? Today, in our day, in our lifetime, how might we be guilty? We're not, we're not waiting for a report from spies to come back, are we? From Kadesh Barnea. We're not, we're not doing any of that, but how might we be guilty of refusing him that speaks? For surely we have often been guilty of refusing him that speaks from heaven. We have been guilty of refusing to give ear to him, to our Lord Jesus Christ, in his word. How might we be guilty of refusing him? By not reading the word. By not reading the word regularly. By not reading the word prayerfully. By not praying the word. By not listening to the word when it's proclaimed, when it's read in, in our gathered assembly, when it's preached. By not being in attendance when it's preached. By not paying attention, by allowing our minds to wander. Are we not then refusing him that speaks when we do this? Or by even worse, perhaps contending against it, arguing against the word of God. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh, is the exhortation. And one of the arguments, as I've already stated, it is receiving a kingdom. We have received a kingdom, and we should be infinitely grateful. That should provoke our worship, to worship God, to worship Jesus Christ according to his design, according to his commandments, his direction, according to his word, according to the word. This means that we worship a king because we have received a kingdom. Does that not follow? Does that not make sense? If we've received a kingdom, who's the king? Well, we know who the king is. If we have received a kingdom, if we're part of a kingdom, then we worship a king. It must be from the heart. It must be from the heart. It must be from a new heart. It must be from a heart that has been changed, a heart that has been renewed, regenerated by God the Holy Spirit sent from, guess who? The King, our Lord Jesus Christ. We worship a king and it must be from the heart. If it's not with the heart, it's false worship. If it's not from the heart, it's not true worship. It's phony. 
Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, has said about this sort of thing. He says, let a traitor in actual rebellion bring tribute to a king, it will be but mockery. If you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't love God, your worship is mockery, is what Spurgeon has said, is what the scripture would, would support, would verify. But he must first, this individual must first submit himself unto his prince. He must submit himself unto his prince, his king, to come with true worship. And then he may come with his token of loyalty. Only then. Worship is to be in reverent submission. And that means, partly, that it must be from the heart. But we read in this, wherefore receiving a kingdom, what kind of a kingdom that cannot be shaken? Now the writer was talking about Judaism. He was talking about those things that preceded, those things in Israel and, and Mount Sinai and so on. Kingdoms, there surely were there. We've already spoken about David and Solomon and Rehoboam and Jeroboam. There were kingdoms, but they were shaken, were they not? And that's what the writer is reminding us of and telling us that these kingdoms were not permanent, but this is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And the writer is referring, most commentators agree that the writer is referring to Haggai. You don't like my pronunciation, that's too bad. He's referring to Haggai in the second chapter where a statement like of that sort is made in verse 6 and 7. Listen to this prophecy from Haggai. For thus saith Jehovah of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the precious things of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith Jehovah of hosts. Now he's talking about the house being filled with glory. The temple of God being filled with glory. When was it filled with glory? When it was filled with our Lord Jesus Christ. When it was filled with God. When he was the temple. And the precious things of all nations shall come. The King James renders this. And the desire of all nations. And many argue from that. The desire of all nations. And another a hymn of Wesley. He uses that phrase referring to Jesus Christ, the desire of all nations. Isn't he the desire of all nations? Isn't he going to be the desire of all nations at the end times? Don't we see that again and again in the prophecies? And, they, and many want to argue that this isn't being spoken of Jesus Christ because the correct translation could be riches or jewels or gold or, or wealth or a number of things that relate to that. Is he not our wealth? Is he not our gold? Is he not our king? A kingdom, the point being here, that this is a kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The desire of all nations has come. And the removing 
of those things that are shaken. In other words, all the things, the old economy, if you will, it's all coming down, it's being replaced. The types and shadows are being replaced by the reality, which is Jesus Christ, which is his body, his church, his bride. And primarily the argument for that being a reference to Christ is this passage in Hebrews itself. Because the context is Jesus Christ. And he is speaking of these things that are shaken, that those things that are not shaken may remain. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. Christ, one has written, made us first, this king made us first his subjects, then his children, then his heirs. And here he makes us kings with him. For every heir of God is heir apparent to a throne. And we read in Revelation, do we not? In the very first chapter, we read in Revelation, and he made us to be a kingdom to be priests unto his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever. Yes, forever. A kingdom that cannot, didn't say will not, didn't say won't be, cannot be shaken because it's established by God. It's established by King Jesus himself and it cannot be shaken as that other kingdom was. And he goes on to say, this writer preacher goes on to say, that we should worship the king. That we should worship the king with reverence and awe. That we should worship him as subjects, as heirs, as joint heirs. And we can underline that again with with that exhortation, see that we refuse not him that speaketh from heaven. And he goes on to say after that, let us have grace. And I'm very inclined to be sympathetic to those who submit, although it's not actually in the Greek that it really should be in the context. And if you look up the word, it's optional. It's available and it could well and I think better be rendered, let us hold fast to the grace. Let us hold fast to the grace. We have been given grace. That's the definition of grace, isn't it? That it's given, that it's a gift. We have been given grace. And in some of the versions, my own, let us have grace. Another, we have grace whereby let us serve. And because we are thankful, we should worship God in a way that will please him. Well, that's true. And we ought to be thankful. And we ought to serve. Let us show gratitude. Let us be thankful. Yes, yes, yes. We should show gratitude. We should be thankful. We should be worshiping our king. And because we are thankful, because we are grateful. But let us hold fast to the grace. Let us hold fast to this grace. What is that? We have been given grace. We weren't born with it. But it's ours. Gifted to us from Christ. Grace. Anything above eternity in hell is grace, isn't it? That's what we deserve. 
Anything above hell. Anything above an eternity of separation from God. Anything above that is grace. The grace of God through Jesus Christ. And as it is impossible, we read in the previous chapter of Hebrews, that it is impossible to please God apart from faith. So it is impossible to please God without grace. It is impossible to worship God truly without grace. There's no argument there, is there? Without grace, we can't worship him aright. Even as without faith, we can't please him. Our worship as our prayers must be presented to God by our great high priest, Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus, isn't it? It's all about the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Let us hold fast then to the grace. Let us hold fast. Christ to the seven churches in Asia Minor in Revelation 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3. In 2.25, he says to the churches, hold fast till I come. Hold fast till I come. Sounds like a military term, doesn't it? Hold fast till I come. Maintain your position. Hold fast till I come. That's, I believe that's what, what we're talking about. Let us hold fast to the grace. And while we're holding fast on it, do all we can to build it up, to improve upon it. We do read in the scriptures about grace upon grace. Do not. Let us strive to build that up. We are told by Paul elsewhere to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What? Work it out? Oh, you're teaching works? No. Because it's God who works in you, both to will and to do. You work out your grace, to, to put it that way. You work on your grace because it's God that will build your grace up. Is that fair? Let us hold fast. Hold fast till I come, Jesus said. And in 3.11 in Revelation, I come quickly. Hold fast that which thou hast, that no one take thy crown. Go and take thy crown. You're a king. You belong to a kingdom. And you belong to the king who has purchased you with his own blood. Hold fast that which thou hast that no one take thy crown. Hang on to it. Don't let anyone take it. Don't listen to the gainsayers. Don't listen to the False people, the false preachers, don't listen to them. We are to hold fast. We are to hold this grace fast. We're to retain it. We're to possess it. We're to seize it. The kingdom, why are we not told by Christ? The kingdom of God comes by violence. We're to seize it. Possess it. Take it. Retain it. Hold it fast, as Paul says to those in, at the church in Thessalonica. Quench not the spirit. Despise not prophesyings. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Hold fast that which is good. Get rid of that which is not. Hold fast 
that which is good. We have been given grace. See that we, we refuse not him that speaketh. Let us offer, we go on. Let us offer service or worship well-pleasing to God in reverence and awe or reverent submission. Reverent submission, godly fear. How, what does that look like? What, what is it exactly? Reverent submission. We got an idea from the example of Christ as he, as he wept and as he, he experienced godly fear in some mysterious way in Hebrews 5, 7. That reverent submission of Christ, thy will, not mine, be done, he said. Reverent submission. But some writers tell us, and I'm inclined to agree, that it, it represents a holy shamefacedness. That's a long word. <laughs> I don't know if you could find it in the dictionary. Shamefacedness. In my copy, the 1901, it says shamefastness is used. The same thing, they just changed it a little. But it's a holy shamefastness, shamefacedness. And we see that in, in 1 Timothy 2.9, speaking, speaking of, the, of the, the, the proper woman in 1 Timothy 2.9. In like manner that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, and that's something of a synonym too, modesty, shamefastness, shamefacedness. In like manner that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefastness and sobriety not with braided hair and gold or pearls and so on. It's that, it's that modesty, it's that humility. It, 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 some of the writers even use blushing, a kind of a blushing. And we see that in Isaiah 6, I think. We see that represented by those angels in Isaiah 6. Those that, with, with six wings, they covered their feet and they covered their faces shamefastness, shamefacedness. They didn't feel that they had, had the right to look upon God, the, the king upon his throne, and they covered their eyes, they covered their faces. And that's the picture that we have here. Think about the Pharisee and the publican and the difference there. The publican, you could say very easily, was representing modesty, humility, even blushing wouldn't even look up. God have mercy on me, the sinner. He recognizes his sinfulness, recognizes that apart from grace, he has no right to look upon the face of God in Jesus Christ. Have mercy on me while the Pharisee says, oh, I've done this and I've, I've tithed and I've given and I pray so many times a day and no modesty there, no humility there, no blushing there. Hold fast, hold fast and, and grant that reverent submission, that holy shamefastness. I even thought about the, the lepers and it may, may not be a, a good analogy, but nonetheless, there's a sense and I don't agree with those that, that believe that leprosy represents is a type of sin, but nonetheless, the lepers were told to, to go out and cover their lips and, and to cry, unclean, unclean. And, and there's a sense in which we come before God and we can come before God in Jesus Christ 
and we can say clean, clean. But when we think about what we are apart from Christ, when we think about what we were before we were quickened, before we, our hearts were regenerated, we, we think and we cry unclean, unclean. And we might even, we might even say with old John Newton, I'm not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. I'm not what I shall be, but by the grace of God, I am not what I used to be. Amen. You see the difference. <laughs> we, we know, and we can rejoice, and we can sing praise, because we're covered by the blood, but apart from that covering, do, do you really forget the sins you've committed? Really? Come before God, blushing, humbly, modestly. Apart from Jesus, I'm unclean, but thanks be to God, I'm clean. And now I've been able, because of Christ's satisfaction, to pronounce me not guilty. But I know that in myself, I'm unclean. Unclean. This writer, this preacher has said that we are to worship in Christ has said that we are to worship in spirit and truth. See then that we refuse not him that speaketh. Because our God, and we go on to the final point, our God is a consuming fire. And we already cited that from Deuteronomy 4, 23 and 24. And we already spoke of Jeroboam's sin, but do you remember the next chapter after Jeroboam installed those false altars and those golden calves and so on, that God sent an old prophet to him to denounce him and to prophesy against him and to prophesy against that altar. And Jeroboam said, get that guy. And his hand withered up immediately. And he begged that old prophet to pray God to give him his hand back in a right fashion. And he did. But Jeroboam said, pray to God to restore my hand and I'll give you half the kingdom. And the old prophet said, I don't need any of your kingdom. And we could almost imagine him saying, I belong to a kingdom that you don't know anything about. But our God is a consuming fire. And that prophet denounced that false worship. And we saw an example of God's consuming vengeance on Jeroboam right there. And I want to tell you tonight, and I've told you this before, the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Do you know that? Do you believe that? The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. I'm not going to go in to any time with the contest at Carmel, as it's called, but you do remember the contest between Elijah, and this was some time after Jeroboam had established and every, every, every king after that and the people after that, the scripture tells us, and they sinned after the sin of Jeroboam. They sinned after the sin of Jeroboam. They were copycats. They followed the sin of Jeroboam in their worship. And finally, we come to Ahab. We come to Ahab, and he's actually set up 
worship places for Baal to satisfy his hideous wife, Jezebel. But there was a contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And you remember, God is a consuming fire. He consumed every bit of that altar and, and the sacrifice that Elijah set up while the prophets of Baal were jumping around and dancing and cutting themselves and bleeding all over. They couldn't get Baal to consume their sacrifice, but God, who is a consuming fire, consumed that sacrifice. Even the water that had been filled, the trenches around had been filled up with water. And evidently that was nearby the ocean because it was during a drought, but they evidently went to the sea and got all the water they needed. And God sent down his fire and he licked up, even licked up the water out of the trenches, every drop. Our God is a consuming fire, is what we're told here. Through that, all those that followed the sin of Jeroboam and Ahab was the worst. Ahab was the worst. We read in medieval uh, histories and biographies and so on about, about Louis the Short and John the Tall and kings with, with appellations like that. This was Ahab the worst. He was the worst one. It reached this culmination of evil in him. Jesus <clears throat> is God. And Jesus is a consuming fire. Do you, do you know that? Jesus is a consuming fire. We read in, in Thessalonians, in Paul's epistle to those in Thessalonica, we read in the first chapter, you're probably familiar with that. It's rather well known and probably disputed by unbelievers, of course. But we read about Jesus from heaven, the Lord Jesus from heaven with the angels of his power in flaming fire, rendering vengeance to them that know not God and to them that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ is a consuming fire. And we read elsewhere that Jesus Christ shall consume in, in the next chapter, that he shall consume that, that wicked person. That he will consume him with the breath of his mouth. He will slay him. He will consume him. Jesus Christ is a consuming fire. You remember it was Christ it was the Lamb of God that those in Revelation wanted to be hidden. They called for the mountains and the rocks to come down and hide them from what? The face of the Lamb. Our Lord Jesus Christ is God. He is a consuming fire. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Yes, I know. I know all about the incarnation and the wonder of it and that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. Praise God. That Jesus Christ came in the flesh in order to carry out that glorious plan of salvation through his own life and through his own death. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Again, in the words of Charles Spurgeon, he said, the God who is a consuming fire is not accepted by this proud 19th century, and we could say this proud 20th, this proud 21st century. The God who is a consuming fire is not accepted by the proud 
Charles Spurgeon says, I do this day most solemnly declare my faith in the God of the Hebrews, who will by no means spare the guilty. The God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is the one and only God, and I declare him this day to be my God. Jehovah is the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth shall he be called. Jesus Christ, Jehovah Jesus, Jehovah, the I am. I am the door. I am the way and the truth and the life. He is the I am. In that passage that we're looking at in Hebrews 12, in the context, it's in the context of the new covenant. He is our covenant God. He is our covenant, Isaiah says. He is the I am. See that we refuse, not him that speaketh from heaven. I believe these are bookends of a sort. These are bookends of a sort in this passage. See that ye refuse not him that speaketh. Our God is a consuming fire. Bookends. Let us serve the Lord with fear. But not with terror. Let us serve the Lord with fear, but not with terror. Do we understand the difference? It's important that we try to understand the difference. One wrote that with respect to Christ and his rule, we are absolutely subjects, yet with respect unto others, we are absolutely free. I believe that that was John Owen. But even better is the Apostle Paul. You're bought with a price. Be not servants of men. There's a filial fear, a sonship, a fear of sons and daughters, of course. A filial fear to fear displeasing one's father. How much more should, should the children of God be fearing their father's frown? Their king's frown. We have an elder brother to stand between us and our Father in heaven, do we not? We have an elder brother who is a king to stand between us and our Father in heaven. And we plead for his intercession. And Christ intercedes. Showing to the Father his blood sprinkled upon the sinner. Father, I have died for this sinner. That's our king. Amazing grace. We need no longer fear God. He is our heavenly father through the son of his love. But sin displeases your heavenly father. Fear sin. Fear sin. If for no other reason than because it will separate you from God. It will pull a wall up between you and your father. But we don't have, we don't any longer need to fear God. But there's still this godly fear, this reverent submission, this desire to please our Father in heaven by his grace, for his glory, because of his love demonstrated through our Lord Jesus Christ, giving him to us that we might be redeemed. Let us pray. <clears throat> oh Lord, our God, our great and mighty Father in heaven, 
how it is that the creator of the entire universe can be our father is a mystery beyond us. But we thank thee that we believe it because thou hast given us the gift of faith to believe. And thou hast given us new hearts that contain this gift of faith and repentance. And O oh Lord our God, we pray that thou would be pleased to continue building us up individually, each living stone in this room. And Father, that thou would build thy church in the many churches around this area and even throughout the country and even around the globe. We ask, O oh Lord our God, that thou would magnify thy name before us every day as thou hast been doing every day for so long. O oh Lord our God, have mercy upon us. Keep us in thy hand, we pray. By thy grace and for thy glory, through Jesus Christ, amen. If you'd stand, please, for the benediction. It's from Galatians 5.1. The apostle says, For freedom did Christ set us free. Stand fast, therefore, and be not entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Amen.